younger children can leave for children's church now. The rest of you will want to get out your outline, says the message, uh, the forgiveness of Christ on it. Have that to follow along. Okay, we're just ignoring him. He's not here. If you you look at your uh, outline today, it says preamble. I didn't know what to call it. But I had to talk about this passage before I preached on it. So, um, So that's what I called it. If you look in your Bibles, open up to today's passage. Most of your English Bibles will have Uh, A footnote or a little insert that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. So we've got to deal with that. So, there's a preamble. We read here good news. We read here, neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. But we have to ask, is this passage the Bible? The manuscripts of the New Testament aren't clear. Some manuscripts include this text right here where you see it in your Bible. Other manuscripts uh, put it at the end of John's Gospel or two or three other places. Still others omit this passage entirely. Our our two oldest uh, oldest and best manuscripts omit this passage. And I don't want to get bogged down in a textual discussion of, uh, a technical discussion of textual criticism. But you can't overlook the question because they printed right there in your Bible that the earliest manuscripts don't include this. So let's take a minute just to look at that before we get into it. As you know, printing was invented by Johannes Gutenberg around 1450. And until then, books were copied by hand. And that allowed for mistakes to enter in. Fortunately, the New Testament was copied widely and preserved carefully, and the edition of the Greek New Testament that I have compiles the best of about 316 manuscripts out of some 5,000 available manuscripts that have uh, pieces uh, of the New Testament. Some of those manuscripts uh, are very early, 2nd and 3rd century. By contrast, Aristotle's uh, metaphysics is based on five manuscripts, the earliest of which is the 10th century, which is about 1,300 years after Aristotle. And that's why Bruce Metzger, an expert in the field, a New Testament scholar, recently passed away from Princeton University. But he writes, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of his material. And he says, we don't have to wonder if we have the New Testament. We have it. The problem is that some other readings were sort of inloaded along the way. And the task of the scholar is not to recreate a lost New Testament, but to weed out a few scribal editions uh, from later times. So what about this passage? We're not sure who wrote it. Maybe John, maybe not, because the manuscripts disagree. There's actually two passages that are not real clear, the end of Mark and this one here. 
But this event certainly occurred. Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, says, throughout the history of the church, it's been held that whoever wrote this passage, this little story is authentic. It's quoted all the way back to Augustine, who writes about it. Again, Bruce Metzger writes, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, which is a scholar's way of saying we think it's true. The Jesus we meet here is the same Jesus we meet everywhere else in the Gospels. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Both points come out clearly in this text. The message of this text is good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's the message of the Bible. So let's go to the text and see what it says starting at the end of John 7 and through John 8:11, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of, of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to this text. We trust that you will use it in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would speak powerfully to us this morning. We ask that you would do this for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Rebecca Thompson fell twice from the Fremont Canyon Bridge. She died both times. The first fall broke her heart. The second fall broke her neck. She was only 18 years of age when her and her 11-year-old sister, Amy, were abducted by a pair of thugs near a store in Casper, Wyoming. They drove the girls 40 miles southwest to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, a one-lane steel-beamed structure that rises 112 feet over the North Platte River. The men brutally beat and then raped Rebecca. She somehow convinced them not to do the same to her younger sister, Amy. Both were thrown over the bridge into the narrow gorge. Amy died when she landed on a rock near the river. 
but Rebecca slammed into a ledge and was ricocheted out into deeper water. With a hip fractured in five places, she struggled to the shore. To protect her body from the cold, she wedged herself between two rocks and waited until the dawn. But the dawn never came for Rebecca. Oh, the sun came up and she was found. The physicians treated her wounds. The courts imprisoned her attackers. Life continued, but the dawn never came. The blackness of her night of horror lingered. She was never able to climb out of the canyon. So in September 1992, 19 years later, she returned to the bridge. And against her boyfriend's pleading, she drove 70 miles an hour to the North Platte River. And with a two-year-old daughter and her boyfriend at her side, she sat on the edge of the Fremont Canyon Bridge and wept. And through her tears, she retold the story. The boyfriend didn't want the child to see her mother cry. So he picked up the toddler and carried her to the car. And that's when he heard her body hit the water. And that's when Rebecca Thompson died her second death. The sun never dawned on Rebecca's dark night. Why? What eclipsed the light from her world? Fear? Perhaps. She had testified against the men, pointing them out in the courtroom. One of the murderers had taunted her in the courtroom by smirking and sliding his finger across his throat. On the day of her death, those two men had been up for parole. Perhaps the fear of a second encounter was too great. Or was it anger? Anger at her rapist, anger at the parole board, anger at herself for a thousand falls and a thousand nightmares that followed. Anger at God for a canyon that grew ever deeper and a night that grew ever blacker and a dawn that never came. Was it guilt? Some think so. Despite Rebecca's attractive smile and appealing personality, friends say she struggled every day with the ugly fact that she'd survived and her little sister had not. Was it shame? Everyone she knew and thousands that she didn't know had heard the humiliating details of her tragedy. And the stigma was tattooed deeper with the newspaper ink of every headline. She had been raped, she had been beaten, she had been shamed. And try as she might to outlive and outrun the memory, she never could. So 19 years later, she went back to the bridge. Canyons of shame run deep. Gorges of never-ending guilt. Walls ribboned with the green and grays of death. Unending echoes of screams, put your hand over your ears, splash water on your face, stop looking over your shoulder, try as you might to outrun yesterday's tragedies, the tentacles are longer than your hope. And they draw you back to the bridge of sorrows to be shamed again and again and again. Now if it was your fault, it'd be different. If you were to blame, you could apologize. If the tumble into the canyon was your mistake, you could respond. But you weren't a volunteer. You were a victim. And sometimes your shame is private. Abused, molested, seduced. No one else knows. But you know. And that's enough. 
And sometimes it's public. A divorce you didn't want, a disease you never expected, a handicap you didn't create. And whether it's actually in their eyes or just in your imagination, you have to deal with it. You think you're marked. Whether private or public, real or imagined, shame is always painful. And unless you deal with it, it's permanent. Unless you get help, the dawn never comes. You're probably not surprised to hear me say that I think there are Rebecca Thompsons in every city and Fremont Canyon Bridges in every town. And there are many, many, many Rebeccas in the Bible. So many, in fact, it almost seems that the pages of Scripture are stitched together with their stories. We've met some already in this book, each acquainted with the hard floor of the canyon of shame. But there's one woman whose story sort of embodies them all. It's a story of failure, it's a story of abuse, it's a story of shame. And that's her, the woman standing in the center of the circle. The men around her are religious leaders. Put yourself there. The men around her are the Pharisees, the self-appointed custodians of conduct. And the other man, the one in the simple clothes, the one sitting on the ground, the one looking at the face of the woman, that's Jesus. Jesus has been teaching. The woman has been cheating. And the Pharisees are out to stop them both. That brings us to our text this morning. And we start with the lack of forgiveness. The lack of forgiveness. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. We start at the beginning of our passage where we see Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, just outside of the walled city of Jerusalem. He didn't have his own home to go to, but he was at home with the Father. So knowing what was facing him in the days ahead, he went to one of his favorite places to pray, to the Mount of Olives. And then the text lets us know that he got up early and entered Jerusalem and came back to the temple to teach the people, people who didn't always accept him, and people who'd been led astray by false and shallow teaching. And despite almost certain opposition, Jesus returns to the temple courts where he would once again have to face his enemies. So Jesus comes back to teach the people. And I think Jesus must have loved doing this. And I imagine that he probably explained things to them that were really important about life with God. And here, teaching in the temple, he came in contact with many different kinds of people, including women of less fortunate experience and reputation. Women whose illusions regarding men were long gone. Women whose eyes saw piercingly and whose lips were well-versed 
in phrases of contempt. And all of a sudden, the scribes and Pharisees show up with just such a woman. See, they caught her in the act of adultery. For all practical purposes, she's already been charged, tried, and convicted. When they drag her into the temple courts, when they pull her through the crowds of people who stare at her in contempt, and they make her stand in front of Jesus. And I think it's rapidly becoming clear that they have misused a person. She had, as verse 4 says, been caught in the act of adultery. It's clear in the Greek this is an action that she's used to. For her, adultery is a way of life. She's a professional at it, and she was without excuse. She'd been caught in the act. There's no way she can say, hey, look, I was just passing through the neighborhood. It's a case of mistaken identity. You've got the wrong person. No, she's guilty. And they dragged her and her sin out into the open, in front of the crowds. They make her stand in front of Jesus while they play with the story of her shame. You know, I don't think they cared one whit about this woman. They didn't care one whit about upholding the law either. Verse 6 makes it clear that they wanted to trap Jesus and they're using this woman as bait. And if they had to stone her to smithereens to get Jesus, so be it. She was expendable. And when you treat people as things, even people who sell themselves without conscience, you dehumanize them. You destroy something precious inside them. And whether you use people for your own pleasure or to prove a point, even a religious point, you're treating those people as things to be used instead of people to be loved. The scribes and the Pharisees are looking at this woman not as a person, but as a thing, an instrument they could use to bring a charge against Jesus. They're using her or misusing her as you might use a worthless pawn in a game of chess. To them, she had no name, no personality, no heart, no feeling, no soul. She's simply another expendable pawn and their strategy to checkmate Jesus. But not only have they misused a person, they've misused the scriptures. They're well acquainted with the law. You can't help but think they had to know they're somehow twisting the scripture to their own ends. In verse 5, they say to Christ, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In effect, they're putting Jesus' knowledge of God's word on the line, right here in front of the crowds. They're saying, essentially, Come on, Jesus, do you dare go against Moses and go against the law? Even if it means failing to display the forgiveness you've been teaching these people about? What do you say now, Jesus? If you say, yes, go ahead and stone her, these people aren't going to believe anything else you ever say about love and compassion. Your credibility will be shot. No one will follow you. You'll be considered nothing but a big hypocrite. Your ministry will be over, finished, kaput. However, if you say no, don't stone her then you'll be condoning her sin and disobeying the law of Moses. And by association, you'll be considered guilty of the same sin, and we can stone you too. Ha! We've got you now. We've got you between a rock and a hard place, literally. So what will it be, Jesus? 
Do we stone her or do we stone you? However, they put words in Moses' mouth that Moses never said. In the ancient and medieval worlds, there existed a despicable practice of having rulers sleep with all the women just before they got married to show his dominance and authority over all the people. And the law that the Pharisees are referring to is in Deuteronomy 22, and it's expressly written to prevent such theft of marital rights. And it referred to women who were both virgins and engaged to be married. It doesn't appear from this text that this woman met either qualification. And secondly, the law explicitly provides that both parties be punished. Adultery is not an offense that can be committed alone. Where's the man? Why hasn't he been dragged in front of the crowds? I mean, either he was fleeter of foot than she was, and he escaped, leaving her to face the hostile accusers. Or the accusers themselves are sufficiently chauvinistic to focus exclusively on the woman. We don't really know. But it's clear, however, in the next few verses that they're not there to uphold the law. They're badly misusing it in an attempt to trap Jesus. And while there's a complete lack of forgiveness on their part, their actions have made plain the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. Starting in the second part of verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, put yourself there. There's a circle of Pharisees. There's a woman in the middle. There's Jesus. There's a crowd. You're in the temple court. Everybody's watching. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I think it's remarkable. They've brought him here. They've made these demands. They've got this woman. The crowd is there. The Pharisees are there. And Jesus says nothing. Verse 6, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. You ever wonder what he wrote? Maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was listing their sins. Maybe he was writing the names of their wives and then their girlfriends. The long-standing interpretation of the church is that he was writing out Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. After all, he's just finished teaching in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But to be honest, we don't know for sure. It doesn't say. Whatever he wrote was for their eyes, not ours. But he doesn't directly challenge them. And he doesn't condemn the woman. And even though he's the one who's being confronted here, it's obvious that the confronted is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate to both sides. He doesn't destroy the woman. He doesn't destroy the Pharisees. He'd have been justified in doing either or both. But no, rather to everyone's amazement, 
and probably to everyone's discomfort. He says nothing. He just writes in the dirt. And silence can get loud. There are times when nothing a man can say is nearly so powerful as saying nothing. To argue brings him down to the level of those with whom he argues, and silence convicts them of their folly. They wish they hadn't spoken quite so quickly. They wonder what he thinks. And you can just see it, the lips of Jesus tighten. His features show the strain of the preceding weeks. In his eyes, there's a foreshadowing of the bitter weeks to come. But no anger pours forth. He's unbelievably compassionate. He hasn't said a word. Because of Jesus' compassion, we see that the confronters are convicted. It says they keep asking him. There's mounting frustration. Obviously, they haven't just come from a presbytery meeting. the way I felt yesterday. We had a Presbytery meeting. It was hours of mounting frustration. Debate for two hours, make no decision. I just couldn't find the right space to bang my head. (laughs) But here's the Pharisees, and they're frustrated. It says they continue to ask him. They keep questioning him. So finally, Jesus straightens up, stands up, and says, verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's a direct reference to the law in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, where it says the witnesses, the accusers, must be the first to throw the stones. But they must not have ever participated in this type of offense themselves. And Jesus knew that they had twisted the scriptures, but he also knew what the law really said, and he interprets it correctly. And in so doing, he upholds the law fully. Notice he says, throw a stone at her. While preventing them from breaking the law, they had to be free from the same sin to do it. And he faced up to them and told them that only those of them who've never lusted in their hearts or in their minds or in the flesh get to do any killing today. Only those who've never done it, never wanted to do it, or never thought about it get to throw any of the rocks. Placed between a rock and a hard place, Jesus stands firm. He refuses to compromise either his principles or the person for whom those principles were given. And now the accusers are standing there, convicted of the same sin as the accused. And one by one, hands open up and stones thud to the ground. Convicted by their own conscience, these champions of morality drew their garments around them and slipped away. Text tells us the oldest ones first. Age has a tendency to temper self-righteousness. And so those with the most guilt and the most wisdom leave first. The people quietly file out and disappear until the court of the temple was empty except for the two most important people in the story, Jesus and the woman. Only they were left and were given a privileged view of a private moment. And so we see the results of forgiveness. The results of forgiveness, starting in the second part of verse 9. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, 
Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We're sort of peeking in at a private moment. The woman realizes that the noise level around her has decreased. She looks tentatively around for this crowd that's supposed to kill her. I imagine her standing there just looking straight down in shame. All the people who dragged her there are gone. And she starts looking around. Instead of seeing 40 pairs of feet surrounding her, she sees just one. And I think she looked at these feet in surprise because these feet didn't have on the sandals of a rich man. No, they were the shoes of a Galilean fisherman. Not the feet of the man who spent hours every day being pampered and perfumed in the Roman baths. They were calloused feet. They were sunburned feet. They were dusty feet. These are the feet of a man who walked miles and miles out of his way one time just to put his arm around a Samaritan woman and tell her everything was going to be okay. And then she looked at the hem of his garment. It wasn't Brooks Brothers or Calvin Klein. It was homespun, kind of frayed at the edge. She looked at his cloak, and his cloak was no better. She looked at his physique, and I don't believe his physique was any other than average. Besides, in her profession, what's one more physique, more or less? And she looked up at his face. And Josephus, the historian, tells us he looked like every other Nazarene, which means he was a Mediterranean Jew, probably with an olive complexion. He had black hair, probably curly. He had a black beard because that was the style at the time. I don't know if his hair was long or short. It doesn't matter. But when she looked into his eyes, she realized that she wasn't just looking into the eyes of another Galilean Jew, another itinerant preacher. She's looking into the eyes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the fairest of 10,000. And she who knew men better than most men know one another responded to his power and spoke to him reverently. He looks at her and says, Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And she knows now that she's free. The charges have been dropped. The Lord has made clear, I don't condemn you. I love you. I forgive you. I came to die for you. Most of us know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How many of us know John 3.17, the next verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The woman in this story is an example of John 3, 17. This woman, this bold sinner, is face to face with overwhelming grace. And grace is broken through. And if you stop and think about it, there's only one person here in this story who met Jesus' qualifications to stone this woman. There's only one person there without sin. Jesus himself. What a contrast between these two people, the guilty and the guiltless, the adulteress and the advocate, the sinner and the Savior. Demonstrating the truth of John 1.14, that Jesus is truly full of grace and truth. 
He forgives the sinner without condoning the sin. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. The men who accused her left with convicted consciences. The woman who was accused left with a cleansed character. Her life was changed by being confronted with overpowering truth. Jesus didn't condone her sin, he conquered sin. And she leaves with a new start for a new life. It's an amazing story. But what are we to do with it? What are we to do with it? Are there principles of forgiveness that we can draw? I think there are. Chuck Swindoll writes on this passage that three truths emerge that we can apply in our relationships today. First, the practice of confronting sin calls for humility. This is not a place for pride. Jesus exhorts us in the Sermon on the Mount to look at our own lives closely before we look critically at the lives of others. He says in Matthew 7, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We like to reverse that. We think the log is in the other guy's eye and the speck is in ours. That's not what he says. We get the log. Paul reiterates this, Galatians 6.1. He counsels confronters to be cautious. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We have to ask, why this hostility to Jesus? I mean, to understand it, we have to ask, why are the Pharisees here in the New Testament at all? I mean, time after time, the gospel writers uh, trot out the Pharisees as the bad guys. And whenever I see them there, I think, good night. Pharisees are such morons. I'm glad I'm not like that. (laughs) Notice all the elders started laughing. I think there's not great truth there. But that very thought is being a Pharisee looking at another sinner and saying, I'd never do that. I'd never sink that low. And the Pharisees are here in the Bible to bring to the surface our own sin and selfishness. We face a choice between defending self and desiring Christ, and we can't have both, and self can feel so good. And think about it, the Pharisees are model citizens. They're the ones sticking their fingers in the dike, holding back the forces of evil. But the New Testament treats them like villains. Why? Because they're too good for Jesus. They knew better than Jesus. They thought they were more compassionate than Jesus. And these wonderful people crucified Jesus. And Jesus said, and to Luke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Confronting sin starts with humility not pride. Second, the privilege of condemning sin is based on righteousness, not knowledge. It's not a matter of knowledge, of knowing about the sin. In his famous book, Guilt and Grace, Paul Tournier is a Christian Swiss psychiatrist. explains that living in human society is like swimming in an ocean of criticism and contempt and shaming. He gives lots of examples and Uh, sort of to translate them to our culture, if a rural redneck scoffs at sophisticated urbanites and then sophisticated urbanites scoff at rural rednecks, it's just guilty people doing their best to change the subject. 
Guilt is a social dynamic. Everyone wants God to join them on their side and say, sure, go ahead, stone them. Are we so much without sin that we feel free to cast the first stone? Are your eyes so clear, so without logs, that you can see well to remove the speck from the eyes of others? Are you spiritual enough to restore others caught in any transgression in a spirit of gentleness? We're never called to condone sin, but we're not to condemn sinners either. Third principle is correcting sin starts with forgiveness. We don't start with rebuke. Notice the pattern of Jesus here. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. He isn't saying you have to be perfect from now on. He's saying to this woman, you have to change. Why? Because I want you to enjoy me forever. I want us to stay close. You've just seen the dark power of a guilty conscience. You've seen it drive people far away from me. Never forget what you've just seen. Never forget the gracious words that I've just told you. The purpose of obedience is not to set you apart from other sinners. The purpose of obedience is to keep you tender towards me. Live a new life. Reach out by faith for more because I'm worth it. That's what Jesus is saying. The Bible says, 1 John 1, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This passage is not primarily the story of an adulteress or of hypocritical religious leaders who cynically use her to attack Jesus. The central figure of this drama of immorality, hypocrisy, and forgiveness, as in all of John's gospel, the central figure is the Lord Jesus Christ. And someday we will all stand before Jesus. We'll stand in the same place as the guilty woman. We've all committed adultery, most of all adultery against God by loving things more than him. And yet he came not to condemn us, but to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Pharisees chose the path of denial and evasion. But the woman stood there. She didn't run. She listened. Which path are you choosing today? Are you evading Jesus? Or are you standing before him? Jesus Christ, if you think about it, has so much authority... He scares the living daylights out of us. But he also has so much love and so much grace, he's the only one who can save us. See, there's days when the bold sinner is us, is me, is you. And each of us needs to turn to Christ and his word so that we can be overpowered by truth and overwhelmed by grace. Neither do I condemn you. If you've ever wondered how God reacts when you fail, frame those words and hang them on the wall. Read them, ponder them, drink from them, stand below them, let them wash over your soul. Neither do I condemn you. Better yet, take him with you to your canyon of shame. Invite Christ to journey back with you to the Fremont Canyon Bridge of your world. 
Let him stand beside you as you retell the events of the darkest nights of your soul. And then listen. And listen carefully. He's talking to you. Neither do I condemn you. And watch, and watch carefully because he's writing. And he's writing to you. And he's leaving a message, not in the sand, but on the cross. And not with his hand, but with his blood. And his message has these words, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We should pray. We should pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.